This morning we are reading out of uh, Daniel chapter 3. So think back to uh, Sunday school days, and this is a story we've all heard a million times. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and whose breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The king Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the perfects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that was King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the perfects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of a horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you were to fall down and worship the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews, they declared, or they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, tragon, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fire, or burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the provenance of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, tragon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is, and who is the God who will deliver you from out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of, the hands, uh, out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered that the furnace be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. 
And he ordered that some of the mighty men of his army bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fiery, or of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the doorway of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come out here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, the perfects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads were not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than to serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the province of Babylon. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, a few things. First of all, good morning. Welcome to Refuge. Glad you're here. Uh, number one, apparently there is some bustling over Holy Catholic Church. What does this mean? Char, what have you done? Okay, people, ready? We did not say Holy Roman Catholic Church because that is a thing. Well, I'll just say that. I'm not even going to go into that this morning. Catholic means universal. That's all it means. And so we believe that there is one church, the redeemed, the family of God. And so when we, you know, say this together, the Apostles' Creed, that's what we're declaring. There's only one church. There's not all these denominations, all these differences. There's really only one orthodox universal church. So that's what that means. Don't freak out. Uh, If you want to talk more about that, Great, let's talk. Um, Secondly, sorry about Daniel 3. I was trying to cut it up and be like, oh, we'll cut these verses out. It doesn't work. So anyway, we are in the middle of our year of biblical literacy. We're actually almost done. Guys, on the 23rd, we begin the New Testament. How rad is that? Good job. Way to go. The seven of us that have actually stuck with it, right? Um, But yeah, so we are 
dedicating this year to uh, as a year of biblical literacy and what that means that we as a church are reading the Bible for ourselves, maybe for the first time for some of us, but to know firsthand what it teaches and in order to be shaped by the story of God. Uh, and along with that, we've been teaching just kind of through different themes of the Bible, and we've actually taken a couple of books, like we taught Esther last month, and so we're, we're talking through Daniel this morning, and we're going to be looking at Daniel as a catalyst for how the people of God live faithfully as a religious minority. Now, for the last month or so, we've been looking at a period of Israel's history known as the exilic period. And what happened during this time is that the nation of Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel, after many years of God's patience uh, and warning through his prophets, they finally received their just judgment. They were just living just wicked lives, the way that they were treating the poor, the fatherless, the widow, all the ways that God had called them to righteousness and to justice, to social justice, and to holiness. They had just compromised all those things. And God sent warning after warning after warning. And so finally, God sent judgment, and that came through the Babylonians. And so the Babylonians have come uh, during the reign of Jehoiakim, and they conquer Jerusalem, and they take the king, the royal family, the court officials, and the artist from Jerusalem, they take them to Babylon. And this begins the 70 years of captivity known as the exilic period. Uh, It was mentioned, uh, I think, in the previous studies by Nikolai, that something that is clearly seen in the prophets is the understanding that Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, the Most High God, that he doesn't just send his people into exile, but God, in fact, goes with them into exile. And this will be significant as we're looking at Daniel. Now, I think most of us know that Israel if you know a little bit about the Bible, was a very unique nation and people group. Uh, And this was because God had chosen Israel of all people on earth to be the ones through whom he would redeem the world. Now, in order to preserve them, God had given the people of Israel very distinct laws, very specific culture, and a very unique form of worship compared to all the surrounding nations. And this distinguished them and kept them separated from Uh, the the other nations in the land and the surrounding regions. Now, of course, all of that had been compromised, which is why they're in captivity, right, and under judgment. But all that to say, what happened when the captivity started, this is a fascinating thing that happened. The Jews are carried off to Babylon. They will not go into the city. So what they do is they settle outside of Babylon on the river. And they have this idea in their mind, Um, commentators think it's most likely for two reasons that they do this. One, they did not want to be corrupted by the Babylonian pagans. Maybe a little too late for that, right? But nonetheless, right, maybe it's a new resolve to be loyal to their God, and so they're not going to go in and be compromised by Babylon, right? Or, this comes up in the book of Jeremiah, the second is because they believe that the captivity would be over quickly, that it would be only two years. So this is what happens, kind of setting the scene for Daniel. God speaks to Jeremiah, and he says, I want you to write a letter to the captives of Judah who are there outside of the city. And you can read this in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 14, and you'll see that Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of the most out-of-context verses that we use ever. Anyway, in essence, this is what God commands the people through Jeremiah. He says this, go into the city, make a home there, settle down there, 
cultivate a life in the city, build houses, plant gardens, eat the produce of those gardens, marry, give in marriage. What he's trying to say is grow and cultivate families. And finally, he ends with this, seek the peace and prosperity of that city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So the call for Israel in exile is be culture makers, influencers through building, gardening, family, working for societal peace and prosperity. And as I was reading through this, I was just thinking, wow, this is interesting to me. It's almost like at this point in Israel's history, God calls Israel to almost like a kingdom of God civil engineering like I want you to think big, I want you to think about the development of this city. What is this city becoming? What will this city be? Be the ones to shape the culture of the city to which I have called you. Now, many in our time have seen incredible similarities between the Babylonian captivity and the post-Christian era that the church is now living in. And many have grieved the loss of Christendom and Christian influence in our country. We talked about this in Esther. And they see this as a kind of judgment of America, the once Christian nation. Now, usually the response of these people is kind of like the Jews, to flee, to insulate from culture, and specifically cultural hubs like large metropolitan areas because of their moral corruption and the impending doom of judgment. Now, I used to be in a band that's like a little secret that I keep, and I don't tell anybody the name of this band on purpose. Uh, but we did a little bit of touring, and it was really fascinating because we'd go and play at youth groups and Christian conferences, all these things. And you go to like, you know, such and such Church of Detroit, and you know where it was? It was in some suburb that no one on earth had ever heard of outside of Detroit, right? And I found this again and again and again. You go to this church that's this church named after the city, and you find they're actually not in the city. They are in this safe suburb in a strip mall. And what happened back in the 80s and 90s, there was white flight, right, that happened. And a lot of the conservative people went to the suburbs and escaped the cities. Well, guess what? The church went along with them because the church was afraid of moral corruption, why are we talking about this, Char? Okay. Because that was the response, right? Oh my gosh, culture is evil. We're going to be corrupted. We need to flee, just like the Jews were doing in Babylon. Now, others, myself included, of course, I'm looking at this in hindsight, see the church in terms of what Israel was called by God to do in this passage, Jeremiah 29. The church is called to be a colony of the kingdom of God, whatever culture it is in. To pray and work to see God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to be fully involved, according to Jeremiah 29, in the life of our city and culture, working in it and praying for it. And at the same time, we are not to adopt its cultural ideals and convictions or lose our distinctive identity as God's holy people. And this is what Daniel and his friends did. Though they were Babylonian in the sense that they worked for the Babylonian government, they dressed Babylonian, they talked Babylonian, they succeeded in Babylon, they had jobs, career in Babylonian government, for goodness sake, right? And they succeeded at it. They were really good at it. Yet they were very much still faithful as Jewish people. So part of the book of Daniel, um, what it what it has taught the people of God for centuries, and I hope will teach us, is how we live faithfully to Jesus in a culture that has a competing vision of what it means to be human, 
that has a competing vision of human flourishing, a competing vision of prosperity, of freedom, of life. And, and the question, how do we live in a culture that has a competing vision and remain faithful to God's vision of being human, of flourishing, of freedom, and of life? That's my introduction. So here we go. You guys ready? Yeah, I'm going to take that as, I'm going to take your silence as a, mm-hmm, absolutely. Okay. The first thing that I think is so fascinating about this, ba- this passage is to see Babylon's civic religion. And we'll get to that in just a second. But a little backstory since we're dropping into chapter 3. So in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And what he does is he sends out to all of his wise men because he has no idea what this dream means. It's so bizarre. And he says, hey, I want you guys to tell me the interpretation of my dream. And actually, I want you to tell me my dream because I want to make sure that you're not uh, just lying to me, deceiving me. And so he sends out, you know, to have this interpreted for him and told to him, and nobody can do it. But there's this guy, Daniel, right? And the spirit of the living God is in him. And Daniel prays, and he asks God, and God gives Daniel the dream and the interpretation. And so what happens is in this dream is Nebuchadnezzar sees this image or idol, and it's huge. And it's made of all different sections with all different types of metal. There's gold, there's silver, there's bronze, there's iron. And then there's this mix of iron and clay in the feet. And then out of nowhere, there's this rock that isn't made by any hands. And it just comes out of nowhere and it smashes into this image. And it hits it so hard that it grinds it to powder. And then the wind blows and it's gone. Like, like it was never there. It's gone. Nebuchadnezzar wakes up. <gasps> like, what in the world is that? Right? And so Daniel tells him. God has revealed to Nebuchadnezzar what is going to happen in the coming days. And specifically, Nebuchadnezzar, you are this head of gold. And so, you know, there's this interpretation, and Nebuchadnezzar is, like, so excited that he's the head of gold, I guess, right? And he has this exclamation, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And so the king places Daniel in this high position in the government, and Daniel introduces him to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he's like, Hey, why don't you put them over the province of Babylon? He's like, Okay, so he does that, right? Chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar builds a hundred-foot statue in the middle of this plain, and it's all made of gold. Do you understand what's being done here? Does it make sense what's being done here, right? Yeah, okay, cool. I don't have to explain that. Makes my job easier. So, he commands everybody in his kingdom that they are to bow to this Image And so, yeah, what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he's saying, my kingdom is actually the kingdom that is going to last forever, the golden era. You know, I mean, this is really no different than, you know, the Third Reich and what was believed about the Nazis and how they would usher in, you know, this thousand-year reign. And governments have done this throughout history, right? So this is his claim. He's going to turn back the word of God that was revealed to him, making this whole statue of gold, sending a message that his kingdom and dynasty will last contrary to the word of of the God of Daniel, and he's going to overturn the word of God. And so what's going on here as the story develops is we see that Babylon uh, has what is known as a civic religion, and some of you would be familiar with this, but uh, this is doing what you should never do at the family dinner table, which is talk about religion and politics and then mix the two, right? Uh, This terrible stew. So uh, a 
civic religion has basically three main convictions. And number one, the conviction that the gods have chosen this nation. So we're going to talk about Babylon for a second. So the gods have chosen Babylon. The gods have given favor to Babylon, and that's why their army, their king, is crushing every other army, every other kingdom, because our God rules your God. And they're doing this by taking stuff out of the temple of other people's gods, and they put it in their temple. So the idea is, look, my God beat up your God and took his stuff. We're bigger than you. We're better than you. Second conviction, Babylon and its king are agents of God's rule, will, salvation, and presence among human beings. So wherever Babylon rules, our God's rule as well. And God has given us power to exert authority over the world wherever God wants us to extend our reach. And finally, the third, Babylon manifests God's blessing. So if you want peace, you want blessing, you need to submit to Babylon. If you want security, justice, flourishing, you will give in to our rule and adopt our morals and principles. To do otherwise is futile. You are on the wrong side of history. Let's just put it that way, right? And so this is what it, civic religion means. And you can do this. You can swap out any country, right? You want to take Babylon, swap out, you know, um, the British Empire, And what happened with Britain and their world dominance, you can swap out America for this, which we will do in just a minute. Um, But this is what's going on in this story. Nebuchadnezzar and all of his officials and people believe that Babylon defines reality. That Babylon gets to define right and wrong, success and failure, hope and happiness. Babylon is God. All of that is being symbolized by this image, and the people are forced to pledge allegiance to it, to bow down, to pay homage to it. Now, something that is very interesting to notice in the Bible, a little uh, study tip, is not just the stories that are told, which that is interesting as well, but how the stories are being told. This story... It is repeated multiple times that the king gives a command to worship his image. It records multiple times the king's herald that he's loud and direct in carrying out the decree of the king. It records multiple times that all the king's officials, that all the people bow down while this loud music plays. And the repetition in this short section is the author trying to get us to imagine the immense social pressure to give in to what everyone else is doing and adhering to. Everyone is caught up in this nationalistic spirit celebration and hysteria. The king, the officials, all people, even the artists and musicians are playing the songs, right? Writing the national anthems, if you will. Everybody's singing it in chorus together. Give in, give in, bow, bow, bow to this image. Give allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon, Babylon the Great, Nebuchadnezzar the Great. And the repetition is used to heighten the tension of the story for us to feel the weight, the heaviness of the scene in which conformity is normative and disobedience is unthinkable. And yet, in the midst of this, there are three Jews who are Babylonian officials and they do not and will not bow to this image. What was that like? Now, I never do this, but I actually have a photo. Anybody familiar with this photo? This is 1968 in Mexico. 
This is a fascinating photo right here. So you're probably not familiar with the name John Carlos. Some of you might be. But we're familiar with this image, at least some of us. So it's 1968, Mexico City Olympics. And the medals are being hung around the necks of Tommy Smith, Peter Norman, and Carlos, or excuse me, John Carlos. Now, as the star-spangled banner begins to play, Smith and Carlos, two black Americans wearing black gloves, raise their fist in the black power salute. We're familiar with this, right? It's a symbol of resistance and defiance. We know this from American history. Uh, John Carlos, in this article, he says this, in life, there's the beginning and the end, and the beginning doesn't matter, and the end doesn't matter. All that matters is what you do in between, whether you're prepared to do what it takes to make change. There has to be physical, material sacrifice. When all the dust settles and we're getting ready to play down for the ninth inning, the greatest reward is to know that you did your job when you were here on the planet. Now, John Carlos, his words, okay, yeah. The fascinating thing about this, as the article says this, the image certainly captures that sense of momentary rebellion. But what it cannot do is evoke the human sense of emotional turmoil and individual resolve that made it possible or the collective global gasp in response to its audacity. John Carlos, in the article, somebody asked him, they're like, why does it look like your arm's kind of cocked a little bit? He says, I was ready to throw a punch, just in case. So that's fascinating, right? So you, you just look at this. The whole world is watching. The national anthem begins to play, and what do these guys want to represent? They're oppressed people. They are not going to give into the nationalistic spirit. They're not going to play by these rules. And, I mean, it's not... I mean, when you look at kind of what happened there, it's not this huge thing that they did. There's no megaphone. There's no loud protest. It's just this. But this means a lot. It means a lot in that context. I mean, this is very similar to what, and you know, you might boo and poo-poo Kaepernick, but this is similar to what he was doing, right, when the Star Spangled Banner was playing. He would take a knee. Quiet protest. And again, I want us to... to experience some of what that global gas might have been for these three Jews. The whole world is there in the plain, and everyone has adopted Babylonian culture and mindset, and yet these three men, that's what they do. Everyone else is bowing. They don't bow, but it's a quiet protest, right? They don't picket, they don't scream, they don't denounce Babylon, they don't mock its gods or ideals. They don't draw any attention to themselves. In fact, they just don't bow, and wow, does it shake things up. Does it cause a ruckus? They're immediately reported to the king. It says, therefore, at this time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. King Nebuchadnezzar live forever. You, O king, have made a decree. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. You are not the authority of their lives. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, we just read the story, but just let me recap for a minute. Nebuchadnezzar gets super angry, gives them a second chance, right? threatens their lives, and asks this interesting question, 
Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? See, this is the civic religion piece. I have your God's stuff in my temple. Who do you think is going to save you? I've already defeated your God. Who can deliver you? Great response from these guys. So polite. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The king gets super ticked about this, right? Heats the fire seven times hotter than normal. And has he's been thrown into the fire, hats and all, the fire's so hot it kills the men that throw him in. And then the king sees something. Something like incredible happens, right? Four men in the midst of the fire. And he says, right, one of them looks like a son of the gods. And he calls to the men, come out. And they come out and they're, they're not even singed, not even the faintest smell of smoke. The fire has no power over them. Now, I've been doing, I, I think I shared this with you guys. We've been doing bonfires in our backyard this whole summer. And like, I have a whole slew of clothes that just smell like smoke because I'm just sitting by a fire, right? And like, nothing, <laughs> Nothing, right? Like, there's not a singe. There's nothing. Like, this is incredible, the way that these guys have been preserved. So the king sees this. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach. Who is this God? Who is the God that's going to deliver you? Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Make, I make a decree, any people, nation, language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb, their house laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. What a beautiful, beautiful statement of the uniqueness of our God. There is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. You know, this is a huge claim of the Bible, is that Yahweh, the God of the Jews, alone is the God of salvation. The gods do not rescue, but Yahweh, he rescues, he redeems. Now, why didn't these Jews bow? It probably would have been so easy to justify. I mean, like, how, how many people were in that plane? All the music, all the noise. I mean, just think about this. Like, you're at, I went to a concert recently, and just kind of a similar spirit, right? Everybody's just caught up in the moment. Everybody's staring at the stage. Everybody's moved by the music and the lights and everything that's going on. How many people do you think would have noticed if I would have just sat down in the middle of that room? Like, maybe the person next to me that tripped over me, right? That's about it. Like, what difference really would it have made if these guys would have just bowed? I mean, like, really, like, who's going to notice three guys in this just massive multitude? What's the dif what difference can three people make against a whole empire? Maybe some of the thoughts, I'll bow my knee, but not my heart. If I don't bow, I'll be seen as an enemy of the state, a traitor, and I work for the government. It's complicated, right? I'll be dishonoring and biting the hand that feeds me. It's just political. It might seem like a small matter, 
And I think that there are many ways that these guys could have justified. I think there are many ways that we justify things like this. It may seem like a small matter, but it's huge. Now, these Jews didn't bow because they had a deep conviction and a deep-rooted identity. Now, there's a fact that we don't really have time to unpack, but Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you do your biblical history, you'll realize that these four men grew up under the revival under Josiah. There was none like it in all of Israel's history, not even the days of David. The way that Israel came back to the Lord, the way that they sacrificed, the way that they returned to the Lord, the way that they were taught and instructed by the Levites. It was kind of like this season where Israel actually did what Israel was supposed to do. And then Josiah dies this tragic death. It's terrible. Even Jeremiah the prophet writes a lamentation for Josiah. There's this nationalistic mourning. And then three years later, Nebuchadnezzar comes and he just, you know, takes them away captive. So these men would have grown up under that revival. And in this time, they would have returned back to Torah, back to the law of God, would have been instructed in this law. And deep in the conviction of the Jew and deep in the conviction of, or excuse me, deep in their identity was the fact that Yahweh, the God of the Jews, was the one true God who made heaven and earth and who had made humans in his image. And after his likeness, you know, sometimes we're like reading through the Ten Commandments. We're like, what is this idol thing? This doesn't make sense. Like, why can't we make images? Why is it such a big deal? Because right out the gate in Genesis 2, God says, I have made you in my image. I already have an image. Don't make images. I've already made one. It's you. I have made you in my image. You are the representation of me. And that is the intent of humanity on earth, right? To be this image of God, to rule like God rules. Now, we don't, again, have time to get into all of this. But this was a deep conviction in the Jewish heart and in the Jewish mind. All other gods and idols are lies, are ripoffs of the one true God. And any time we give ourselves in worship and devotion to what is not the true God, we dehumanize ourselves and we sell ourselves short. And that is not something that just applies to primitive people living in, you know, the Near East. It applies across the board to humanity. Any time we give ourselves in worship and devotion to what is not truly God. We dehumanize ourselves and sell ourselves short. Listen to this by N.T. Wright. He says, When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship, what you devote yourself to, what you give yourself to. What's more, he says, you reflect what you worship, not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around you. So those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators 
competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. So what was, out, what was at stake? Why did these men bow? What is at stake is the honor of the one true God to whom we owe all allegiance and glory for he made us and the hope and flourishing of humanity. To bow would be a lie and would be to totally demolish any missional witness that Israel had, this opportunity that they had, the place that God had given them of authority in the government. It would be to just wipe all of that away. It would not even matter. Now, it's easy, isn't it, to look at this ancient text and think, yeah, people were crazy ignorant back then with their civic religions, myriads of gods bowing down to idols. We are so much more enlightened now. So let me just start by pointing out to the fact that our country has a 300-foot statue that everyone sees when they go to, like, where America first started, right? Where they're visiting our nation coming in. A 300-foot statue and a national song that represents the religion of our country, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So it might be really easy to look at this story and be like, yeah, man, that must have been crazy for those guys in those times and the way that they were called to give allegiance to this. And we have nothing like that in our country, or do we, right? Like, yes, we absolutely do. Michael Gorman, uh, from his book Reading Revelation Responsibly, says this, American civil religion values human liberty and rights as a divine gift and considers it, perhaps on par with strength, as one of the highest national values. The protection and furtherance of freedom is therefore a divine mandate and mission. I mean, just think for a moment about all the political conversations that are going on right now and how heightened they are. They are all about individual freedom. That is what every single one of them are about because this is the idol that is being touched. The operative notion of both political, corporate, and personal individual freedom is that of God-given inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. An idea derived both from the Enlightenment and from one of the most important sacred texts of the civil religion, the Declaration of Independence. So America's God is liberty and pursuit of happiness. And what we want to do as Americans, right, our kind of national identity uh, or this civic religion, how it works for us, is to bring that to bear on the world. You know, I, I lived in England for four years. And everything in England is small. Everything is. The cars are small. The streets are small. The plates are small. The beds are small. The toilet is small. The sink is small. Everything is small. And you know what? happened to me. I lived in London, so there were always people coming through from Texas, you know, and they were always talking about how everything was so small, you know, how they wanted big cars, and everything was America this, America that, America, America's better, America's better, and I had British friends who were just like, we hate Americans, because all they do is come over and just tell us how much bigger and how much better America is, and how glad they are that they broke off from old King George, you know, and like all this stuff, right? And, but just like this idea that Americans just go around and just judging every other nation, like, we're the best. You just need to do what Americans do, and you'll be blessed. You'll be great, right? And your nation will thrive like our nation, right? This is a civic religion. We think of other nations who are not like us, African nations, Eastern nations. What they do to women is oppressive because it's not what we do to women. What they do in politics is oppressive because 
They don't think like we think, right? And we are God's chosen nation, and we want to bring liberty and freedom to bear on your nation. And you know what? We'll kill you if you threaten our freedom, just so you know. So if you want your country to be great and flourish like America, submit to our way of life. Submit to our way of thinking, our vision, and our pursuit of happiness. You submit to our way of life, and you'll have true flourishing. Now, maybe you're not of this nationalistic mindset, um, and, and, you know, right now you're just like, oh, yeah, totally. Trump's like that. Obama was like this too, right? So if you're more liberal, we can do Obama, and we can talk about that and how he had the civic religion as well and how he was pressuring African nations to say, you need to adopt our identity politics or we will not give you protection, right? Trump does the same thing. This happens all the time. So maybe you're not. I'm talking really fast. Maybe you're not of this nationalistic mindset. Maybe you're more liberal-minded. But just for a minute, think about what we do as Californians. For a minute. The rest of the U.S. needs to catch up with our policies, our views, whether it's identity politics, immigration, refugee policies, our pollution and energy policies. The rest of the nation is so backwards, and we are so progressive and enlightened. What's wrong with America? It's not California. That's what's wrong with America. You want our flourishing? Submit to our way of life. Submit to our version. See, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. You think this is really any different to what took place in Babylon? It's not. And maybe in our time it's a bit more subtle. The idols we worship aren't usually images that we bow to. Or maybe we're just numb to it because it's so prevalent. And we don't realize how much we sacrifice to these ideals. We don't realize how much we sacrifice to maybe other narratives, to the narrative of career, to education, to beauty, to power, to fame, to sex, of course, to freedom and our own personal happiness because we're Americans after all. So I think just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the question that we need to ask ourselves is the identity question. Who am I? And who are you? Who am I? How do I identify myself? Am I first and foremost an American citizen? Am I first and foremost, you know, so when I think about myself, do I define myself in terms of that civic religion? My life is about freedom. My life is about the pursuit of happiness. Do I think of myself, you know, in terms of my identity as a Californian? I'm progressive. That's what I am. And maybe it's not about my personal freedom, but it's about freedom for everyone else. That seems to be kind of the California agenda, right? I want to make sure that everybody has their freedom. Nobody's freedoms are trampled upon. How do we identify ourselves? Because, because, and this is a very important piece, activity will always flow from identity and not the other way around. Your activity will always flow from your identity. You will live out who you are. And this is what the scripture tells us, church, that we, first and foremost, are citizens of the kingdom of God, people who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and are as under his reign. So I asked this morning, is that who you are? Is that how you identify yourself? 
I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. So it's not about my freedoms, first and foremost. It is about the kingdom of God. It is not about my pursuit of happiness. It is about the kingdom of God. And you know what? When we begin to actually look at our lives and our priorities, we're probably going to have to change some things when we look at who am I and who do I want to be. We're going to have to rearrange some of those priorities because first and foremost, the church is the blood-bought people of God. Your actions flow from your identity. And so here's the big protest piece, right? Though God calls us to live in this country, to be good citizens of it, absolutely, to pray for it, to pursue the peace and prosperity of this city, we Christians live our lives in protest to our culture by being loyal to Jesus, our King, and his vision for the world. What he believes about life and love and freedom and joy and sex and money and power. So just like these Jews in Babylon, there are going to be things in our culture and about our country that because we are being loyal to that identity of being blood-bought people, we must say no to. We must stand while others bow. It doesn't have to be this big thing. Oh, how oppressed I am. How my religious rights and freedoms are being taken away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at the rest of the world. Look at Christians all throughout the world and all throughout history. There are things that we must say no to in order to be loyal to Jesus and to identify, to to keep our identity as the people of God in order to be faithful to, to who God has redeemed us to be. This is an interesting um, take from a guy named Dwayne Friesen. He wrote a book called Artists, Citizens, and Philosophers. It's in my, it's on the way to me right now. I'm waiting for it to come to my mailbox. I want to read this book. Um, I got this quote from somebody else. So it's fascinating. Though. He says, many in the wider culture do not share the stories and metaphors that shape us as Christians. Our Christians' lives are lived on the border between the world into which we were born and another country. Another city. The church is shaped by a vision of God's kingdom, the ordering of human life by an alternative vision. I love that. The ordering of life by an alternative vision. You know, when we were going through the book of Acts a few years ago, we were kind of looking at, like, there's the religious Pharisees, and then there's the mob, right? The pagan mob. And it was just like this interesting thing to look at it, be like, wow, Jesus' people are always misunderstood. And and being Jesus people, you can't like join the conservative Pharisees and you also can't join the liberal pagan party of Athens either. You're just somewhere in the middle and it's uncomfortable and it's, yeah, that's what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Often we will feel this pull. We will feel out of sorts. We will feel this world is not my home. Now, that's not to say, oh, heaven is my home, and I'm a, actually you know, a spirit that just has a body, and I'm going to go be in heaven forever. No, that's to say, no, I'm a citizen of heaven, as Paul says, and I am eagerly waiting for the Lord who will come from heaven and set up his kingdom on earth, and my life will feel this dissonance 
wherever, however good life is, if that is my true identity, I will always feel this dissonance until the kingdom comes. Anybody feel that? You feel that rub? Good. Good. Because that's what faithful people should feel like. And sadly, so much of the pursuit of happiness is creeping into the church. It's a mild prosperity gospel. It doesn't, it doesn't present itself as such. It, it's subtle. God wants me to be happy. God wants my life to be peaceful. Yes, it's called the kingdom of God. <laughs> and it will come when the king steps down on this earth and makes all things new. That will finally come. Are there pieces of that? Does that play into our life? Should we pursue that? Absolutely. Absolutely we should. But we will never feel the resolution that our hearts are longing for until the king reigns on earth. And so we will always feel just that rub if we are living faithfully to the Lord. Now, in closing, I think just a few things need to be said. Just like in this story, if God calls us into these areas of influence, and he does and he has, there are many of you who are working in our government here who are influencers in this city. Praise be to God. He's put you in these places. He's put you wherever you are to represent his kingdom, to stand when others bow, to give that silent but faithful protest, and to give an answer to anyone who does ask a reason for the hope that is in you with humility, with fear. But as God puts us into these situations, we might not be protected from the fire in the sense of being thrown into the fire, right? Just like these guys, like, You know, it's easy to think, oh, you know, God's going to get me out of this. He's going to protect me, and nothing bad is going to happen to me. Well, unfortunately, the storyline goes, we're being created in the image of Jesus, and if you know the story of Jesus, he was crucified, killed, buried, but he rose again, and he lives forevermore. And so we have to remember that. We, We follow a crucified Lord. We follow a suffering Messiah, a suffering king. And our lives are being shaped in that way. So God might protect us from the damage that might come when we stand for him. But even if he doesn't, here I think is a, is, is a picture here. God will be with us through whatever fire comes upon us. He might not pull us out of the fire. He might not deliver us from going into the fire. But we will have his presence. We will have his presence. It's really interesting to me as I was thinking about this. Revelation. In that book, Jesus is speaking to the churches and he promises to the faithful. What does he promise to them? He promises presence. And to the unfaithful, he says, if you do not correct this, I will remove my presence. But here's something that we have, no matter what, we might not be delivered out of the fire, just like these guys, but we have the promise of his presence in whatever happens in this life. He promises his presence to his people to his church until the end. And let me just say that like these three men who yielded up their bodies rather than compromise, who did not fear the king, so all those that are in Jesus truly have nothing to fear. Ultimately, what can people do to us? This is something that's repeated again and again in the New Testament or even in the Psalms. 
the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or there's another one that says, um, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? And how much more so for Christians? For in Christ and under our King, we have already been killed. We have already been buried. We have already risen again. We have already been justified and glorified because we're in Christ. And our hope, our joy is secure in the king and the kingdom of God. What can man ultimately do to us? I feel like I've got like these things I want to touch. So there's one more and then I'm done, I promise. Okay. And besides all that, we never know how God might use even the smallest faithful protest to turn the hearts of people to him. To put his power, his kingdom, his life and vision for human flourishing on display that people might see that no God, no philosophy is able to rescue like our God. I mean, what an incredible thing that Nebuchadnezzar, out of the mouth of this king, they, they, the, the king's statement, who can deliver you out of my hand? And the king's like, oh, that God can. Okay, that's the one who can do it. Out of his own mouth, he recognizes and declares to all people, there is no God like this God. And who knows what God will do through even our smallest act of faithfulness, our faithful protest, how God will change the minds and hearts, how God will wake people up to see that no God rescues like our God. So in closing, how might God be calling us in our lives, in our families, with our neighbors, in our jobs, with coworkers, bosses, employees, to protest the status quo? And to be faithful to his reign and kingdom. This could just be like just the way, you know, just a system works at your job. Just like the dysfunctionality, right? Just not giving in to gossip and slander about your boss. I found that in my history of work, that has gone a long, long way with people. Like really stands out to them. Like, oh, you don't talk crap on people. Why? You know, so you get to talk about, like, conviction about, like, well, I shouldn't be doing that. They're our boss. We should hold them in honor. And if we have a problem, we should go to that person and talk to them. You know, sexually, there's a part in the Bible that talks about this. And you get to talk and just talk about your faith talk about your convictions. Just a small example. But in what way can you stand while other people are just going along with everyone else and just the culture of work, the culture of our cities? In which way is God calling us to faithful protest? I want us, church, to take that question and to meditate on that this week, asking ourselves, Lord, am I being faithful? Am I feeling the rub of faithfulness? Or have I capitulated to the culture and and the cultural stream around me? So as we close, Holy Spirit, enlighten our hearts and lives. Illuminate so we can properly assimilate your word and live in faithfulness to our Savior and our King Jesus Christ, who gave himself holy, who, Lord, was the only faithful one. Faithful to you, God, Father. 
Lord, would our lives be modeled after the faithfulness by the power of by uh, the faithfulness of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for your glory, Lord, for the salvation of the world, we pray, Lord, that people would see that no God rescues like our God. Amen.